Hello and welcome to this episode of Nudge. Do you ever feel burnt out at work? Do you feel unproductive, struggling to finish big projects? Or do you feel simply overwhelmed by your emails? Well, if the answer is yes, then my guest today could have some solutions for you. Bruce Daisley is best-selling author, award-winning podcaster, and VP of EMEA at Twitter. In his book, Joy of Work, Bruce explains the problems with the modern workplace and simple rules we can follow to start enjoying our jobs more. In this episode, we'll cover the optimal number of hours most employees should work, the problems with email notifications, and the importance of taking a lunch break. To start off, Bruce talks about the burnout epidemic affecting today's workforce. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com slash service to do more for your customers today. Yeah, probably the, the number one thing that anyone who looks at the modern workplace would observe right now is there's something of a burnout epidemic going on. And this is... I think a direct consequence of the fact that we've systematized a new way of working in the last 10, 15 years. The one thing that has happened in the last few years is that the average working day has gone up. The average working day used to be seven and a half hours a day, and it's now gone up to nine and a half hours a day based on a few different measures of it. And that directly has an impact because when people are working 50 hours a week, it might seem like you know, it's, it's sort of 24% increase, whatever. But it, it might seem like a, a small increase. But in fact, in terms of our energy levels, in terms of the way that work imposes itself on our identity, it's a really substantial shift. And so one of the things that we've seen over the last few years is that work has become far more part of our identity than it ever was in history. The, the combination of us working longer this relentless focus on needing to be achieving more than we did last year. Um, other th- economic factors like, you know, the, the tragedy that housing is now so unaffordable for so many people. All these things combine to us 
giving far more headspace to our jobs and our professions than we ever did in history. And it's directly having a toll on us as individuals. We're feeling exhausted. We're feeling spent. By, by some estimations, half of the modern workforce are in a state of burnout. And all of it is unhealthy. I think workers' identity is unhealthy. I think relentlessly thinking about our jobs is unhealthy. It seems that when we look into the evidence for it, the more we think about our jobs, the less able we're, we're able to achieve that degree of detachment that allows us to think of creative ideas. And overall, it just makes the experience of work for so many of us feel hollow and depressing. You know, we, we find ourselves thinking, how many more years have I got of this? A recent Gallup survey of the global workforce suggested that only 13% of us feel engaged by our job. For those in the UK, that's just 8%. One of the reasons we feel so unengaged, as Bruce says, is because we've simply hit our limit. We're burnt out and we're overwhelmed by a never-ending list of things to do. And this is measurable. A 2015 YouGov poll found that the majority of us, 51%, feel burnt out by our current jobs. It shouldn't surprise us. The introduction of smartphones, push notifications, web conferencing and instant messaging keeps us online longer than ever before. A study from the States suggested that 60% of workers are remaining connected for 13.5 hours a day and 5 hours at the weekend. Why? Well, a different Gallup survey found that 62% of us remain connected because we feel it's expected in our jobs. All of this makes us miserable. But the fault doesn't just lie with the tech we've implemented. It's also down to the offices many of us have grown to love. The principle of open plan offices, of course, we can, we can see that if we all found ourselves sitting in five or six people, eight people offices before, like small, small little units. If we were in that before, then the walls that separated team A from team B seemed like a barrier to the, that recombination of ideas, that, that sense of collaboration. And so bringing down those walls seems a wholly benign, positive thing. What we find in practice, though, is that by putting people together, we do a couple of things. We increase the amount of interruptions that everyone experiences. And that has the impact of putting them into what's sometimes called negative affect. It's sort of a, a state of mild anxiety, a state of, of mild busyness. So we put people into a state of negative affect where the impact on them is that they become less collaborative. In fact, when we look at the evidence of open plan offices, they look beautiful because they allow far more daylight in. Any building looks great when you you can look across sort of this vast savanna of desks. But what you find is that the, the data isn't great. People hating their colleagues goes up 74%. Uh, people spending more time on email, email goes up 66%. And the promise of making people feel like they are able to collaborate with different people just simply doesn't happen. In fact, bring your dog to work day is far more effective at bringing random people together than putting them in an open plan office. Or the solution that Steve Jobs had at Pixar was that he only had, had one set of bathrooms or toilets in the whole of the Pixar office because people could be in their own little cubicles getting on with work, but if they had to bump into people 
in common spaces, then it often led to chance encounters. Open plan offices, truthfully, are principally there to save money. And the challenge for a lot of organisations is that once you've started down that, that slope of thinking that the workspace that people are in is a cost to be economised on, then you start making decisions based on cost rather than based on output. So you find yourself seeing more and more organisations going hot desk only or more and more organisations encouraging working from home, not because of strategic reasons for it, but because it's a cost saving. Open plan offices are part of the problem because they dramatically increase the amount of times we get distracted. Bruce's book cites multiple studies that say on average we're distracted every three minutes at work. As Bruce says, this puts us into a state of negative affect, making us worse at our jobs. There are ways around it, though. Carl Newport suggests monk mode morning, where you're only reachable after 11am or noon with no meetings before that time. By forcing yourself to spend time alone in the morning, you're increasing the chance of flow and high quality work without interruption. It's worthwhile finding a way to move meetings to give yourself three hours of uninterrupted work about twice a week. But what about notifications? Should we keep them on during this time or should we turn them off? So, you know, if someone feels like they're overwhelmed, there's like too many things coming at at them, turning notifications off on their devices is proven to be one of the most effective things. Now, look, there's challenges here. When we ask people whether they think their boss is a good boss, one of the things that they list as a sign that their boss is a good boss is how quickly their boss gets back to their messages. So, you know, all of us are as guilty as this. It's not just bosses who are bad. All of us tend to favour people who get back to us quickly. But one of the things we find is that when people do turn their notifications off, they seem to find headspace is far more accessible than they probably imagined. There was a wonderful piece of research done by some researchers at Telefonica and Carnegie Mellon University. And they asked people to turn notifications off on their phone and their devices for a week. And no surprise, uh, in, in sort of the world of 2020, they discovered that they couldn't get enough people to turn off their notifications for a week. So the researchers were on the verge of giving up and they thought, OK, how about if we ask people to turn notifications off for a day? Sure enough, they got a statistically significant group. They got a big group to do it. And what they found was uh, that the impact was so remarkable it had such an elevating effect on people's mood, on people's sense of anxiety, on people's sense of being overwhelmed, that half of the people who turned off their notifications still had their notifications turned off two years later. And so by just turning notifications off, it seems to give us more headspace to actually get a bit of associative thinking going, a bit of free thinking, imagination. It seems to to, to remove the claustrophobia that often entangles some of our um, more expansive thought. 50% of Telefonica's employees kept notifications off for multiple years after just trying it out for one day. Now to many of you, this suggestion will seem unthinkable. But there's simply no way we can produce high quality work whilst also keeping on top of every single notification we receive. 
The study in 2015 revealed that the average British worker receives 130 emails per day. That's a crazy amount considering nobody's job is email sender. In addition to that, the average British worker spends 16 hours a week in meetings. We can't really handle all of that, all of those emails, all of those meetings, and actually still perform well in our actual jobs. This is having an effect on our mental health as well. 50% of people who keep email notifications on and check emails after work exhibit signs of high stress. And in the UK, stress-related illnesses account for half of all time off work. So removing these email notifications isn't just a nice idea to help improve productivity. It's vital for companies. Fixing this problem could save your organisation millions in lost work hours. There's a really interesting piece of research that suggests flipping from one notification to the next as a youngster can dramatically change your personality in the future. Scientists who looked at teenagers who had filled evenings by continuously switching between social interactions and then stimulus on their phones found that had a silent toll on their thinking. The report stated that two years down the road, these teenagers were less creative, less imaginative, and more negative about their own futures. We're only starting to understand the effects notifications are having on us, and the early evidence looks bleak. We might look back on this period of work in 50 years and wonder what on earth we were doing. To put all of this in context, Bruce gave me a brilliant metaphor regarding elite athletes. I'm always cautious of metaphors that mix sport and, and work, simply because they're not precise and they don't help. But here's one of the areas that I think when we transfer our, our vision of what good working looks like and we transfer it to other, other fields, we can see the, the hidden cognitive biases and the mistakes that are hiding within it. So we know that if someone told you that their objective was to win a gold medal, at the uh, at the Tokyo Olympics, and they told you that their training plan to do so was they were going to train 100 hours a week. You'd immediately question whether that was proven to be the right way to do it. Or someone told you they were planning to become uh, the best actor in the world, and the way they were going to do it was they were going to be spending 80 hours a week just learning lines and reciting lines. would question whether that was the way, best way to do it. And yet we find ourselves with work believing that we're able to do infinite blocks of. So while we're awake, we can fill every hour with productivity that's undiluted and is equally as as valuable. And in fact, when we look into the evidence of this, what the science of ego depletion says, probably the best thing I can do is give you a quotation from a guy called Daniel Everton, who wrote a book called The Organized Mind. Don't buy that book. It's appalling. But um, the uh, he, he said, our brains are configured to make a certain number of decisions per day. And once we reach that limit, we're unable to make any more, regardless of how important they are. So what you find is that when you look into this, there's no shortage of, of accessible anecdotal evidence. You might find that your, your partner or your, your parent or your friend asks you something when you get home and you're like, I just need five minutes. I just can't think about this. Right. So once we accept that, you start questioning back to that Olympian training for Tokyo. Okay. so what would be the best way to win the gold medal? Well, it seems one of the best ways to win 
at a measurable elite performance environment is to mix a combination of re-energization breaks. Once we accept that, we then say, okay, let's now start looking into the science of breaks. The science of breaks is remarkable. So the, the, the amount of evidence we've got that taking a break improves our sense of collaboration, our sense of imagination. It improves our productivity. You know, it makes us less um, instinctively judgmental. You, you, you might know this, but the worst time to find yourself in court is just before lunch because uh, judges and magistrates and juries are far more likely to be uh, harsh and judgmental. And uh, so, you know, you don't want to find yourself there. Or the if you ever find yourself in hospital, uh, the the amount of errors at 4 p.m. are four times higher than the amount of errors at 9 a.m. Breaks and like our distance from breaks has a direct impact at, on, on our, the impact of our work. School kids, their results improve every time they take a break. In fact, if you give them a five minute break every hour during the course of the day, school kids results go up during the day. If you don't give them a break, then results go down. Like there's no shortage of evidence about breaks. Despite this, almost two thirds of Brits feel unable to take even a 20 minute break at lunch, many citing pressure from their manager as the reason, according to research from Booper. Dan Pink states in his book, When, that the golden ratio of work to break to optimise performance and flow is 52 minutes of work and then a break of 17 minutes. I think it's unlikely that anyone listening to this currently follows that pattern. Yet that's what the science shows. We need to move away from this idea that long, uninterrupted work binges are efficient. Instead, we should realise that taking a break is effective. So plan your breaks, schedule them in your calendar and don't move them and your work will improve. To finish up, I asked Bruce about companies that were ahead of the curve, creating environments right for the modern workplace. I think the most important thing that I've seen in organisations is where there's a sense that everyone can contribute to the solution. You know, I went in where a, a temp receptionist had changed the culture because she'd recognised that there was no there was no affinity between the people. There was there was no cohesion. She sent an email around the company saying it's the best time of the week. It's the time you've all been waiting for. It's four thirty on Thursday. It's crisp Thursday, and she'd she'd bought some kettle chips, some Pringles, some chip sticks, you know, like, and she'd lay them out on on paper plates. And she said, you know, come and get stuck in. And it might seem immense, immensely tactical, almost trivial, almost like if you're going to summarize the week, you wouldn't even mention it. But what they found is that when people started connecting with each other at a human level, when they started really realizing that, you know, that woman that they've, they've seen across the office, oh, she used to go to my school. Or, you know, that, that guy, oh, he, he plays football at the place that I play football. So as they start connecting those things together, people feel more cohesion. I went into an NHS hospital in North London, the Whittington Hospital. Uh, Dr. Heidi Edmondson at the Whittington Hospital had zero budget and zero time. She realised that her team were heading towards burnout. They were overwhelmed and exhausted. Uh, she thought, what can I do? She said she realised that they have 10 minutes a day set aside for training. It's, it's called 10 at 10. And uh, they weren't using the 10 at 10 every day. And so sometimes they were, you know, reminding us themselves how to do dressings, reminding themselves how to deal with certain burns, but they weren't using them every day. So she decided once once every week, 
that we're going to use a 10 at 10 to play games. Right. Okay. Immediately, the Daily Mail are, are sort of preparing an angry uh, riposte. But uh, she, she, um, she, she started introducing these theatre games. And she described a scene where they would play various different theatre games where somewhere you have to react to what your partner's doing, somewhere where you have to mirror what your partner's doing, some are word games, some are physical games. Uh, she described one scene, though, and where they played a tournament level of rock, paper, scissors. So this is sort of 60 people in a room playing against each other, but the winner goes on to play the winner of another tournament. And the loser becomes the cheerleader for the winner. So, uh, and she described a wonderful scene for me where a Latin American nurse won the tournament and immediately jumped onto the table and sang, I think it was the Colombian or the Ecuadorian national anthem. And everyone was immediately sort of astonished with this beautifully strong, full-blooded anthem. And they're like, oh, where's, where's that from? And immediately this woman stopped being Claudia, the nurse that no one had ever spoken to, and now with Claudia, the Colombian nurse, it forges connections. So your catalyst might be Chris Thursday, or it might be it might be playing games, but working the way to catalyze a team from a group of individuals into a group of connected connected team members is just such, I think, a, a magical skill to develop. We've covered a lot today. We've learned that the optimal amount of work per week is around 50 hours. Any more than that, and your output will actually go down. We've heard that lunch breaks aren't just nice to have, they are necessary if we want to perform well in our jobs. And we've learned that removing notifications from our phones might seem scary and almost seem like it's impossible to do our jobs, but it's vital if we want to remove the stress from our work. I'd like to give Bruce a huge thank you. He's been brilliant to listen to and I advise everyone to check out his book and podcast. If you'd like to grab a copy of his book, Joy of Work, click the link in the show notes and you can also check out his podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat by clicking the link in the show notes as well. I'll be back with Bruce for another episode of Nudge in two weeks and that show will cover the science behind what makes a good manager. To make sure you don't miss that show, sign up to our mailing list by clicking the link in the show notes. Do that and I'll send you an email every single time a new episode goes live. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nudge.